start with a story that, that uh, man, it's just one that I've loved ever since I, I, I read it. Uh, it's the story of Louis Zamperini. And so many of you may be familiar with that name if you've watched the movie Unbroken uh, that uh, came out, I believe, last year. Um, part of, part of the, um, Louis' story is shared in the movie, and if you haven't watched it, I challenge you to watch it, but if, even better than that would be to read the book, and I rarely recommend reading books to anyone because I just don't love reading, so if there was a book that I'm telling you to read, it's a pretty good book, uh, and so this book, um, Unbroken, uh, tells the story of Louis Zamperini, and, and uh, in May 27th, 1943, most of you were not there, so just have to take it on good authority, but uh, on that date, uh, Louis Louis Zamperini was with a crew of uh, 11 members out on a search and rescue mission flying over the Pacific. And as they, uh, they, their plane needed repairs, and so they were put into this other plane that uh, was uh, uh, the Green Hornet. They, they called it, it was this, this thing, that they, this plane that everybody that, uh, that had been in this plane said, this thing's not airworthy. But that was the one that they were uh, told to take. And as they went, the, the instruments in the plane uh, caused them to drift off their course. And as they had drifted off their course, they ran out of fuel and they had to, to crash the plane into the ocean. Of the 11 members, only three of them survived. Eight of them went down to the bottom of the ocean with the plane. The three that survived was Louis Zamperini, Russell Phillips, the, the pilot, and then this guy named Francis McNamara, they called Mac. And the three of them, uh, as they uh, put out the, uh, the floatable raft, they, they got in there. They realized that they hadn't only lost their crew members, but they lost the uh, supply crate as well. So all of their food, their flares, emergency equipment, all of it had gone down. All they had was this little bit of chocolate. On the first night while they were sleeping, Mac got all panicked that he wasn't going to survive, and he ate it all. And so they began to go, realizing not sure how many days they would be out. They, they were out on a, on a search and rescue mission, so they knew there would be other search and rescue missions and had hoped to be found quite, uh, quite quickly. And they were found quite quickly, but not by who they had hoped. They were found by sharks, and they said every day there were sharks circling their raft, swimming underneath, and attacking, uh, attacking their raft, even at one point jumping into the raft to try and eat them. And they would have to fight them off. The sun was beating down on them. They were hungry and thirsty. And they were finally spotted. After 20-something days, they were finally spotted by a plane. And so they tried to wave the, uh, and flag the plane down. The plane saw them and came closer for a second look. And as it came by, it began to shoot at them. It was a Japanese plane. Filled their raft full of holes. They spent the next eight days trying to patch it. Miraculously, none of them were hit. Day 33... After they'd gone through all of this, 33 days adrift, Mac succumbs to the, the elements and, and dies, and they bury him at sea. And they had thought, man, is this going to be it for all of us? Is this the way it's going to end for all of us? Day 47, two weeks later, almost seven weeks out at sea, they're finally discovered, only to be discovered by the enemy and taken from that place to a prisoner of war camp where they spent the next two years being completely uh, tortured, and going through basically hell on earth. And that's where the movie ends. Everybody leaves depressed. But Louis Zamperini's story continues on. And it's so much better after that. As we, you know, are encouraged to read the book. As I was reading through the book, as I got to the chapter in 1949, five years later, as, as Louis had been just struggling with the, the memories and, and had nightmares every night, turned to alcohol to try and deal with, with all of the, the, the struggles that were going on on the inside. And losing his marriage and losing everything as a result. He survived the war, but he wasn't surviving real life. And it says that his wife invited him to a Billy Graham crusade. And as I'm reading that in this book, I'm like, this isn't a Christian book. I'm like, Billy Graham, 
incredible. It can't, can't possibly be. This, this, this may, I look and there's so much more book left to read. And as I went through, I realized that he did go to see a, a Billy Graham crusade. And it's where he heard the, the, the voice of God in his heart calling out to him. And he gave his heart to the Lord. And he spent the next um, 30 years of his life just simply sharing his faith and his story of what, uh, what uh, had happened to him, how he had survived all of that. But then how God had, had come into his life, forgiven him, but also given him the ability and and the opportunity to go back to all of those camps, to find those people who had, had beaten him, who had tortured him, and to, to tell them that I forgive you. And to be able to share the, um, the gospel, share the good news of what Jesus had done in his life. And he says a number of them came to become followers of Christ as a result. He passed away two years ago, July 2nd, 2014. He was 97 years old. Two days before he passed away, the book that he had helped write was published. It's called Don't Give Up, Don't Give In, Lessons from an Extraordinary Life. It was finished two days before his death. And as I thought about this, I thought, man, the story of Louis Zamperini, there's just incredible things, incredible lessons. But one that I wanted to kind of leave with you guys this morning in, in our series on a, uh, being adrift is this. Uh, last week, we ended with this verse, and I kind of want to start there um, this morning. In James chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, grab them and take a look. In James chapter 1, normally I highlight the words that I want you to kind of focus on. But what, the reason I want you to focus on the words this morning is that you'll see that the, he uses one word from the end of a thought to start the next thought and and continues to do that throughout. He says, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Maybe you got yourself there. However it happens, he says, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce patience and let patience have its perfect work so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. Let him ask in this confident belief with no doubting. He says, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He reveals something in this thing, these two sides, this this idea of asking faith, not in doubt, because in doubt you find yourself adrift. And so my question this morning, I want to talk, and I've wanted to share and talk about this for a while, is this question, do you ever have doubts? As a follower of Jesus Christ, do you ever have doubts? Do you ever wonder, like, I don't know, you know, I've got some feelings of uncertainty. I'm not, I'm not you know, a lack of conviction. It's, you know, maybe for you, you're going through stuff, you're like, ah, is this really going to work out? Maybe when it comes to this, it's like thinking, you know what, last week you realized, oh man, my marriage is so far adrift and I've got so far to go. Or my finances are so far out of whack, it feels like I have so far to go. And you ask these questions, is it worth it? Is it really going to be worth the effort? And maybe you ask yourselves, you know, like, is any of this stuff really true? Do you ever have that? I know it's hard to admit that. Nobody, everybody's like, oh, I hope the person behind me is nodding as well. We all go through these times and these moments of doubt. If you were to ask me, do you have doubt? For sure I have doubts. There's times where there's things where you, where you like those thoughts that come in. And I just want to talk about that a little bit this morning. And along with the idea of it being like sharks in the water. So here's a couple thoughts. If, if anybody here has struggled with doubt, you may want to take some notes. Grab a pen. So number one, doubt. Doubt will attack anyone. Doubt will attack anyone. Sharks don't care who or what they attack. 
I went to the uh, Ripley's Aquarium in Toronto. The place is the biggest aquarium that's close to us. So I was like, got to go check this thing out. Aquarium was cool, saw all the sharks. But then they have these little exhibits where they can show you things about these animals. And, and I went down, they show you, you know, the contents of a shark's stomach. And they eat the weirdest stuff. They don't care what they eat. The one there had like boots in it, like a tire, an anchor from a boat. I'm like, they don't care if it's food or not. If, if they find it they, and they attack it, they just swallow it. They actually have the ability to, to twist their stomach so they can th- um, push their stomach right out of their mouth and get rid of all the stuff that's inside. Simply, God designed them knowing their brain wasn't going to be big enough to, to be able to pass that stuff through. You can't pass an anchor, right? So he's like, gave them another way. And, and as I thought about this, I'm like, man, there's, there's crazy stuff. And I'm reading online. They're like, the 10 craziest things they found in sharks, a whole suit of armor. They found tires. They found Barbies. They found, um, uh, what are those, the, the, the pill, a whole pack of the pill. Uh, sharks get worried, I guess. But uh, they, they, they found a chicken coop with chickens in it, in the stomach of a shark. And you're like, Man, how do, how, why does anybody throw that away for one? But it, it says this thing, it doesn't, it doesn't care what it attacks. Doubt will try and attack anyone. In 1757, again, many of you weren't there for this, but Robert Robinson was there, and he's age 22, a pastor. He wrote a hymn that maybe if you grew up and were raised in church, you may have heard the words of this hymn. It goes, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. You can hear the humming going on, right? It's like, yeah, they're bringing back the hymns. Yeah, uh, that's all we're going to do. But as you, go through the, um, as you go through the hymn, it's this powerful hymn just saying, how, turn my heart just to the incredible um, praise of my incredible God. And then there's this verse that he says, I feel like every day it feels like, you know, that I'm, I need to be tied to grace because I, my heart wants to wander. And he writes these words. He wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, oh take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And people, I've been in church where they just belt those words out because it's something that resonates with all of us. That there's those moments where we drift and we're like, ah, I don't know why, but it's there. It's always been there. And doubt is always the reason why, uh, the the, the first part of why it, it starts. Eve in the Garden of Eden, you know, it's all the way back then, Satan's first question, did God really say that you can't eat from that plant? Yep, God really said. But on second thought, I don't know. Maybe he didn't mean it. You know, may, that is a pretty good-looking fruit. Maybe I'm going to, you know, maybe, he, maybe he, didn't, he wasn't quite as serious. And they begin to doubt what God really said. And we've seen that that's usually what happens is we begin to doubt what God really says. We begin to drift away. And if we doubt in different, different things, we doubt that it's going to work out. We begin to, to drift. We, you know, you, get, you find yourself in a, in, a, in a difficult spot relationally, in your marriage, in a family. It's, a, it's difficult. And you begin to doubt if it's going to work out. And so you begin to drift And it's like those attacks that happen. I want to take you to a story of John the Baptist. If you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. John, John the baptizer, uh, he wasn't a Baptist. He was a guy who baptized people. And he was was, uh, there to... uh, Baptizing in the River Jordan. But he had had the, the audience around. He had their ears and he was able to say things. Well, King Herod, who was the king at that time, he had, uh, he had had an affair with his brother's wife and then he decided to marry her. And so Herod and Herodias, that's the, the two of them. Um, John spoke out against him. He said, that's not right. And the king was like, who are you to tell me? And he puts John in prison. So John's been in prison for a while. And John is the, the one who had revealed that Jesus was going to be, the, the, was the son of God. And here, but here he's sitting in this prison cell 
And it says this in verse 18. He says, the disciples of John the Baptist, and when they had disciples, it was like every teacher had people that followed and wanted to be like them. That's why Jesus had disciples. Many of us would call ourselves disciples of Jesus. We want to be like him. The, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything that Jesus was doing. So John called two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him this question. Are you the Messiah that we've been looking for, we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? And this is a very strange question because John is the guy who told everybody else that Jesus was the Messiah. Nobody knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And God had said to John, John, I want you to go and baptize in the river. People are going to come and be baptized, and one person's going to come, and, and you're going to know it. The, 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 he's going to receive the Spirit of God. It's going to look like a dove coming down on him. So when you see a man baptized in the river and it looks like a dove lands on him, that is the Messiah. And so John's baptizing people, baptizing people, and all of a sudden it happens. And he, he, he realizes this is the Messiah. And he begins to tell everybody else. He's like, that man, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was the one who was before me, he says. Even though John was older than him, he knew this is God. He says, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. And he, he was the one so confident of that. And yet now here he is in a prison cell sending this message. Are you, are you really the Messiah? The one who was so confident now has doubts. Why? Because John's in a tough spot. He's, he's in prison for angering the king who owns the prison. So the guy who owns the prison is the one who he just ticked off. So you know he's not getting royal treatment in prison. He's probably in the worst spot of the prison. And he's been there for over a year. He's been in this difficult spot thinking, man, I'm Jesus' cousin. Like, this shouldn't be where I'm at. Like, if he's really the Messiah... He should be able to do something about this. And so John was, would, uh, was in prison, and, and for most of them, they thought that when the Messiah came, he was going to turn the world upside down military-wise. He was going to come in. He's going to be this great military leader. He's going to set them free from the Roman rule. He would, he would make all things right. And John's sitting there in prison, and all things don't feel right. He's been there for a long time. His cousin should be able to get him out of jail, yet he's still there. He's like, well, maybe he's not who I thought he was. So he, he can't make a phone call. He can't send an email. So he sends his buddies. And it says the two of them go. So it says in verse 20, John's two disciples find Jesus. And they said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, just remember that. At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits. He restored sight to many who were blind. And then he told John's disciples this, go back to John. Tell them what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to every or being preached to the poor. And so like, wow, nobody else can do what he just did. Like he just healed people. It says he just there was people raised from the dead. This is the real deal. This guy's a real deal. We're gonna go back and tell John. And as they're going back to tell John, he stops him and he says, Hey, oh wait, one more thing. Tell John one more thing. And he says this. Tell John, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. God blesses those who do not fall away. That word fall away, we're going to learn a little bit of Greek today. It's called scandalizo. And you're like, scandalizo, I don't care if I know Greek. The whole thought about scandalizo is the word actually, it means this idea of something that causes you to be offended or made to stumble or to fall away or to abandon your faith. This idea of drifting away from, from God because of, the, of, of, what you're, of what you're going through. And he says, John, tell John this. I know he's in prison. I just proved that I'm the Messiah. 
And, and God blesses the word again. It's happy. Happy is the man who's not drifted away because of me. Because God, you know, the Messiah, you didn't get me out of prison. He's like, happy is the one who, even though they may not understand, doesn't drift. And so he told him, go do that. Go do that. Go tell John, don't drift, John, just because you don't understand. But I am who I said I am. I am who you know me to be. And many of difficult situations they go through in life, and they get in that place. Marriage is difficult, and all of a sudden it's like, ah, I don't know. You know, how come God isn't doing a miracle here? For many, it comes in that area of healing. And it's like, I've been praying and praying and praying. How come, God, you haven't done anything? Maybe it's like these things where it's like financially you're like, ah, I don't think I could ever get out of this mess that I'm in. And like, God, I pray. And like, it's just not the answer's not happening as I had hoped. And we begin to drift. We begin to doubt. Doubt will attack anyone. Second thought is this. Doubt comes in quietly. You know the sharks in the water and the shark attacks? You know when you watch it on TV? Everybody knows that the guy is going to get attacked by a shark, right? How do you know? The music goes... And what else do you see? Something cutting through the water. The fin. You see the shark fin, and you're like, it's going around. You hear the music. You know everybody's going to get eaten. Well, it's actually not anywhere like, anything like that in real life. The only times uh, that uh, people know that they're going to get attacked by a shark, they say, are provoked shark attacks, where they're going in and trying to grab sharks by the tail. A number of people have been trying to take sharks out to get selfies this year because of the migration, and there's been an, uh, and they predict there's even going to be a greater number of shark bites this year because of that. But the types of unprovoked shark attacks, the ones where the shark gets you and you didn't see it coming, there's three different types they talk about. They talk about the hit and run, where you don't see it coming, but they bite you and then they leave. Those are the ones you usually survive because you have the time to get out of the water. The second type they call the bump and bite. It's where the shark will circle. It'll nibble you up, but it'll bump, and it'll keep biting and nibbling and bump, bu- uh, at you until it eventually slowly bleeds you out to death. And then there's the third kind, which is the sneak attack, they call it, where you don't see it coming, which is common with all of them. You don't see it coming with any of them, and they just grab and they hold on until you're done. And doubt works m- so much the same way. For some of you, you'll have that moment where it's like that, that, that hit and run. It's like you're doing fine, you're going through life, and all of a sudden there's this little thought that comes in your mind like, huh, I wonder if my wife still loves me. Huh, you know, I wonder if God's really real. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? I can't answer that question. I wonder if God's real. And it's like that little thing, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? Wait, who cares about that? Yes, I know my wife loves me. She told me yesterday. It's like that moment of doubt is, is gone. But for some, it's different. It keeps coming, and it's like bumping, and it's nibbling, and it keeps bumping. It's nagging at you. It's like as you go through your day, you keep having those doubts, and you keep having those thoughts. You're like, I don't really know. Man, I'm not sure. I don't know if this is all real. I, I, don't, I don't know, and it keeps going there. And for some, it's like it's got you in a stranglehold right now. You're at the place where you're like at the crux of of making decisions about, you know, I just want to quit. I just want to give up. I just, I don't know if I believe any of this anymore. I've done and I've tried and whatever. And it's that word scandalizo. Scandalizo, when he says with John, he says, blessed are, happier the ones who are not offended, who are not drifting, who are not doubting because of me. It's actually a passive word. It's not this idea of choosing. It's not this idea of planning. You don't plan to doubt. I don't know if you knew that. It's not like this morning you're going to go, okay, after church, we're all going to Tim Hortons. We're going to have a honey cruller and a double-double, and then we're all going to doubt for a while. You're not planning that. 
maybe, you know, you plan other things, you know, like maybe after church, you know, we're going to go off to Just John's, we're just going to get hammered and you know, whatever. That, that's different. That's planned. You know, you, you can decide to do that. I would uh, advise against it, but you, you, it's a decision that you make. And that's why so, so many people, when they have doubt come in, they feel like they're sinning because they doubt. They feel like, oh man, God must not be too happy with me because I doubt. I don't know if I believe it all. And he's not. It's something passive that comes. And he says, it's, it's like those, um, in our small group we've been learning about, it's like the, the enemy just throws these little darts of doubt into your mind, these little thoughts. And he said, you know what? You can't plan whether those are going to come or not, but you can plan to lift up the shield of faith, to hold up the shield of belief that puts out those, puts out those darts. Third thing, doubt's trying to take you out. Sharks are not pets. Sharks are not friends. You never see a shark at, great, uh, at Marine Land there to give you a kiss. You know, they don't have the great white shark event where, here, come get kissed by, by the great white shark. Nobody wants to kiss this guy. Do we have him? Yeah. Nobody wants to kiss that guy. When shark attacks, it's trying to take you out. And doubt is the same. When you have doubt, it's coming to try and take you out. Every shark that attacked Zamparini's boat made them wonder if this is the last one. Is this it? You know, are we going to die like Mac? Is, is this going to be the shark that finally gets us? They said the sharks would rub along the bottom. These eight-foot boats with these ten-foot sharks rubbing their backs and their bellies up along the bottom of the boat, just letting them know we're still here. And wondering, they're wondering. It's almost like they could hear them whispering, just give up. Just give up. Nobody's coming. Just give up. It ain't going to work. Just give up. Just quit. Just give up. That's why his book was titled, Don't Give Up, Don't Give In. He says, we'll never, we'll never give up. You know, it faces, this idea of doubt comes at all of us. And it came, you know, the thing is we're in good company because it came against the disciples as well. Listen to this uh, series by Andy Stanley. And he talked about this story. I want to share it with you. That Jesus says he had fed 5,000 people and then he had walked on water. All kinds of people were coming around. And it says this in John chapter 6, that Jesus, as he had fed them all this food, they came back the next day and they were like, we want more food. And we want more bread and, and fish. And he said, you guys think that that's what you need, but what you really need is me. And so he tries to creatively tell the story. He says, you know what? My flesh is the bread you need, and my blood is the drink you need. You know, whoever doesn't eat my flesh and drink my blood is not of me. And they're like looking at him like, what? Yesterday was cool. This is not. This, is, this seems strange. Like, what do you mean we got to eat your flesh and drink your blood? And, and this... This, this gets them all thinking. Some of you are like, that's in the Bible? This seems weird. And, and as, you, as, as he's talking about it, the crowd, many of them were just too literal. It's not what he was trying to tell them at all. Some of them didn't like him, so they're stirring up everybody against him. Like, this guy's crazy. This guy's nuts and whatever. John chapter 6, verse 60, here's where it affects us. It says this, many of his disciples said, who? Disciples. This wasn't just the crowd. This just wasn't people who were like, ah, we're here for kicks. This was the ones who said, I want to follow you, Jesus. It said, they said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? And Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, and he said to them, does this offend you? That word is, does this scandalizo you? Does this make you want to doubt? Does this make you want to drift? Here's the disciples of Jesus who've been following him, following him, following him, following him. And all of a sudden they get to this moment. They're like, I don't understand this part. And it makes me want to just distance myself. And so in John 6, verse 66, he says this. At this point, after he talked to them about this, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. 
Many of them were just like, I can't, I doubt took them out. And they began like, I'm not sure. He was a Messiah, he's a Messiah, he's a Messiah. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. No, I don't think he is anymore. And doubt caused them to drift. These were disciples. And then Jesus turned to his 12 disciples and he said to them, are you also going to leave? Are you also going to doubt and, and allow yourself to be taken out and drift? And Peter, Peter steps up and he says this in verse 68 and 69. He says, he replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You know, you're the, ones who, you're the one who has the words that give eternal life. No one else is telling us about heaven or eternal life or how to get there. You're the only one who has that. So right now, yeah, I don't understand why you did the whole eat the flesh, drink the blood thing. I, I don't know if I understand all of that. But I'm just going to keep walking with you because you're the one. You're the one who's got eternal life. I may not get it all, but that's okay. I'm still going to follow. And he says this powerful thought in verse 69. We believe. I'm not going anywhere, Jesus. I don't understand it all, but I believe. I believe and I know that you are the Holy One of God. I may feel like doubting. I may feel like it, but I'm going to choose to believe. I might not understand it all, but I'm not going anywhere. We're like, boy, Peter. You know, you're the hero of faith. No wonder he made it in the Bible. That guy didn't doubt. Look at him. Way to go. But if you read about Peter, you know that when he walked on water, he doubted and sunk. You know that Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times when, you know, when the high school students come up to the adult man and say, hey, do you believe in Jesus? No, I don't believe in him. Doubting, wondering, you know, he's one of the ones who when Jesus died, hid out because, you know, if he died, I guess he couldn't be the Messiah and begins to doubt. So the question is, the last thoughts this morning is this, what do you do? What do I do when you doubt? What do we do when we doubt? If it affects everyone, what do we do? Benjamin Franklin said this, when in doubt, don't. Like, that's awesome. I don't know how doable it is, but it's awesome. You know, when in doubt, don't. You're like, well, what do I, what do, I do? The promise is that you're not going to go through life without a doubt. Uh, and that doubt itself Doubt itself is not sin. Doubt itself is not wrong. Doubt itself is the arena. It's the crossroads where you decide to make a choice one way or the other. It's that the word scandalizo that we talked about came from another word called scandalon, which is, talks about being the bait stick in a trap. It was the idea of doubt being like the bait, that if you take the bait, you're going to drift. But you don't have to take the bait. It's not a guarantee to fail. It can actually be something that strengthens you. You know, in the story of Louis Zamperini, there was a time where they just got fed up with these sharks attacking them. And they said to each other, let's attack it. Let's just, let's just try and catch a shark. And just so that we can, for our own sense and for our own sake, realize these things are not going to take us out. And so they baited the sharks. They tried to grab, he said, a, a six-foot shark. And he says, but a six-foot shark is much stronger than a six-foot man. Pulled him into the water. And he got out, and he realized we need smaller ones. But they baited a four-foot shark, grabbed it by the tail, pulled it into their boat, and they attacked, and they killed the shark. They realized the only part they could eat was the liver, but they, they did this multiple times and ate the livers of these sharks and actually survived on the thing that was trying to take them out. And I would challenge you, there's a truth in the same thing, that when doubt comes to you, it can actually strengthen your faith based on how you deal with it. And here's the three things. Please don't miss them. Number one, when in doubt, and I made them rhyme so you can remember. When in doubt, give a shout. When in doubt, when in doubt, give a shout. You know, it's like that old, my, my dad used to use that term. Hey, just give me a shout sometime. And it's that idea of call, you know, make a phone call, reach out to me. And I love this because John the Baptist, when he was in doubt, when he's sitting in prison, he didn't just stay in that spot. He sent his disciples to say, go find out for me. 
I'm doubting, I'm struggling, but I'm going to send out a shout. Couldn't send an email, couldn't phone, so he sends his friends. And here's what I love, that when you send out a shout to Jesus, praying, saying, God, help me. I'm doubting right now. I don't know, but I'm wrestling with this. Do you realize that he's on your side and wants you to believe? That's what it's always been about. So when doubt comes, comes at you, he wants you to believe. And he shows it to John. When the disciples come and they said, hey, John's wondering, are you the one? It says at that very moment, he starts healing people. He starts doing miracles so they can see it like, okay, he's the one. There's no doubt for us. We can go back and we can let John know there's no doubt for us. He wants him to believe. John chapter 16, verse 1, when Jesus was with his disciples, he says these words. He says, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith, so that you won't scandalizo. He says, so you won't doubt and so you won't drift. He says, I've told you this. And what did he tell him? Well, he had just told him John chapter 15, which is phenomenal because John 15 says, stay connected to me. You can't do anything without me. Let my word stay in you. Stay in my word. I'm telling you all of that so you don't drift. And then after this, he says, and I'm also going to tell you this, that you're going to go through some tough times. The next verses describe it. He says, they're going to kick you out of your church. They're going to, they're going to hate you. For, for the things that you believe about me. He says there's going to be people who think they're doing God a service by killing you. Killing us. Kicking us out. Pushing us apart into tough times. And he's saying, listen, those things are coming, but I'm telling you now so that you don't doubt, so that you don't drift, so you realize in that moment where stuff is difficult, not to let doubt take you out. As you call out to God, it's amazing at how Holy Spirit comes in and leads you to the things you need to find. It's amazing. He said, you know, he's going to lead us and guide us into truth. And when you're doubting things and just saying, God, I, I need your help in this, it's amazing how he'll take you to truth and how truth will just cause you to say, yeah, I believe, and leave that doubt behind. So when in doubt, second, when in doubt, don't camp out. When in doubt, don't camp out. Doubt wants you just to focus on the thing that you're in. Just want you to stay with your mind all on, on this thing, you know, worrying about that, that one thing you don't understand. It just wants you to focus on that. It's what, it's what sidetracked these people because they got follow, 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 follow. Oh, I can't deal with this. Done. There's going to be things that you don't understand. There's going to be things that come up, and it's going to try and take all your attention onto that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we looked at it last week. He says, we need to focus even more or pay greater attention to what we've heard. To what we've heard from Jesus, not what we're not uh, certain of. In John chapter 20, he ends his letter, his gospel, with these words. I love it. He says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous things. In addition to the ones recorded in this book, John wrote 20 chapters of the miracles Jesus did. Same idea as John's disciples going and saying, hey, John, we just saw all the miracles. He said, I wrote them all down so that you would know. And he says this in verse 31. But these, the ones I've written about, they're all written so that you may continue to believe. What is that? So that you won't drift. So that you won't buy into doubt. No, I know. I'll just go to John and I'll just continue to read through all of those things that were written so you may believe that Jesus is who he said he is. That you may know that he's the son of God and that by believing in him, you'll have life by the power of his name. He said, I've put all that stuff there. The word is there so that you can focus on that and not give up. Do you realize that every one of us is going to doubt? And I would challenge you to walk out in faith when doubt, when you face doubt, walk out in faith, not out in the doubt. Every hero of faith has done just this. Noah, building an ark in the middle of dry land. 
wondering how that thing's going to float. I'm building this massive thing every single day. It's like, what do I, how's this thing going to float? I don't know, but I'm just going to keep building. Joshua walking around the battle of Jer- uh, around the city of Jericho. He's like, this is not how we do it. And everybody's like, this is not how we do it. He's like, no more talking. We're not talking about this because God told us we're just supposed to walk around the city and somehow he's going to give it to us. Well, that doesn't make sense. I know. It's faith. Let's walk. David, you know, killing Goliath. Have you ever thought about the story of David and Goliath? They're on the opposite ends of this field and David sees the giant. He's like, the giant's like, come on out and fight us. You know, fight like a man. David's like, you know, looking across, like, how come nobody's fighting him? We can take him. And then David goes and he walks down. And you think as you, if you've ever been and seen somebody far away, they look small. Of course he thinks I can take him. And then he goes and as he's walking through, he gets, and you got to think that at the point where he realizes and he looks up at how big Goliath really is, it's like, uh-oh, what do, I, what do I do now? Can I really take him? Doubt would try and come in there. And David's like, it says he ran towards that giant. Why? Because I'm going to walk out in faith, not in what I'm doubting. And for some of you, you're in those places of doubt. Is it worth staying in this difficult marriage? Is it worth even trying to get my finances together? Is it worth, is my life of any purpose? I don't even know anymore if I want to live tomorrow. It can be as serious as that. To not allow your doubt to take you out. Don't camp out in that place. And the last, the last thought is this. When in doubt, go to what you know. I couldn't rhyme it with out with everything. When in doubt, go to what you know. John chapter 6, last thought, verse 69. Peter said when he's facing doubt, we believe and we know. Not only do we believe, but we know that you're the Holy One of God. And as you're going through life and you find yourself in those spots where you're adrift and where doubt all of a sudden pops up in your mind, go to what you know. Just because there's those things that maybe you don't understand right now, there's a whole lot that he's already showed you. All those disciples had learned so much already. And they just tossed all that aside. He says, you already know that. In closing, Louis Zamperini had no idea. He had no idea what God had in store for him and his life. He had no idea that he'd be able to share the gospel around the world. He had no idea that he would be able to go to those same captors and offer them forgiveness and offer them God's forgiveness. He had no idea that, he would have be, be, that, that any of that was going to happen in his life when he was sitting in that raft. When he was challenged every single day with just give up. I doubt that they're going to come find us. I doubt that I'm ever going to get out of here. I give up. The disciples had no idea at that moment where Jesus said, are you going to leave too? They had no idea that he was going to use them to build the church. That he was going to use them to write the Bible. That they were going to be the ones that turned the world upside down. And they would impact people 2,000 years later in a little town called Balmoral. In a little place called Kingsway. They had no idea. They had no idea that people were going to name their kids after them because they made that decision in that day of, I'm doubting, but I'm going to go with you. Doubt may come my way, but I'm going with you. So what about you? And what about me? What about the doubts and the difficult situations that you're facing or the things that are whispering in your ears right now? I love how you said, you know what? Uh, It's a little bit difficult, but I got people around me. I'm just going to go for it. What's whispering in your ears right now telling you give up? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's life. Maybe it's this idea of trying to follow Christ. Maybe you're a teen and you're keeping your purity and you're like, I don't know why everyone else is doing it. Like, I just want to give up. What is it that's whispering in your ears saying, you know, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's it's actually going to happen. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it can work out. 
what's whispering in your mind. You have no idea what's on the other side of the decision you make when in doubt. So when in doubt, give a shout. When in doubt, don't camp out. When in doubt, go to who you know. Doubt's going to tell you, give up. He's going to tell you, look up. Doubt's going to tell you, give up. He's going to tell you, look up. So what are you going to do with the doubt that you're dealing with today? What are you going to do with the doubt next time it comes your way? Can we pray? Father, thank you for your word and that it gives us uh, hope and help in real situations. (laughs) Jesus, I I just want to say thank you for not giving up on us. We've made some of the wrong decisions in some of those places. You just keep calling us. Holy Spirit, I know you keep working in our lives. I believe this morning you're doing the same thing. And and when we face these doubts, uh, it's you that takes us through. It's just that confident belief in you, and we thank you for that this morning. We can have that. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're with us every, everywhere we go, that it's not uh, just something we hear in a building, but that we can hear your voice from the inside, just leading and directing us in, in through our lives. This morning, Father, I pray for those who are wrestling and are really struggling or find themselves in that difficult spot right now, uh, that, Holy Spirit, you would lead them and guide them to the truth that they need for this moment and this time. Father, thank you again for sending your son for us, for not giving up when it hurt, for not giving up when it was a difficult situation at the cross, but you gave your life for us, and we're thankful for it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We want to live that out to the fullest today for you. In your name and for your glory, amen.